All right. Well, good evening. I'm going to be uh, sharing this afternoon or this evening out of Acts chapter four, verses 22 on down. Uh, before I read, I just want to share a few things here. Um, the passage I'm about to read to you is about two powerful and prominent individuals in the Roman world. These are two people you may or may have not heard before, uh, but they're recorded for us in Scripture, um, demonstrating God's willingness to reach individuals who seem to have it all, yet in reality, they're bankrupt as it relates to the things of the eternal. Who are they? Well, Felix and Drusilla. Now, what's so significant about them? Well, we're going to discover about this narrative is God is no respecter of persons. He loves everyone equally, rich or poor, semi-moral to the really immoral. In the eyes of most people, these two do not even deserve a shot at heaven. They have everything this world has to offer. They had power. They had prestige. They had fame. They have everything that you and I would probably want. But the one thing, one thing they don't have is a relationship with God or the hope of heaven. That's the thing most folks just don't want to talk about. It makes them uncomfortable to think about death or the possibility of death. But death and eternity are inescapable. I've entitled tonight's message, Eternal Decisions are inescapable. You know, heaven isn't earned or deserved. It's not dependent on how good you are or how good you think you are. As a matter of fact, heaven isn't full of good people. Heaven is full of sinners. It's full of people who've accepted Christ as their Savior. You know, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In that one statement, Jesus is stating that the pathway to heaven is singular. There aren't multiple paths. All paths don't lead to God. Now, either he's telling the truth or he is the greatest liar that ever lived. You can't have one or the other. You know, the world is coined a phrase, fake news, right? We hear it thrown around today. It's a popular catchphrase. Yet there are so many people who would prefer fake news over the good news. And the gospel means just that good news. This news requires you to make a decision. The gospel requires you to, to make a decision, and that decision will alter your pathway in life. We're just not comfortable with that. I know I wasn't. When I was sitting on where you're at today, that wasn't comfortable to me. Today, in most every sector of life, opinion is valued as, as a higher premium than truth. It, it used to be said in academia that ideas were debated. Uh, there was a going back and forth of ideas uh, to see whether those arguments had any merit. You know, today scientists will not even engage in a debate over creationism because in their world, science has already answered the questions. There's no such thing as creation, just materialism. They'll say things like, well, you know, in the past, uh, people relied on religion because of their ignorance of how things worked in the world. However, 
you know, they'll also, they'll also say that, you know, we've made many strides and many discoveries. Therefore, there is no need for God. He was a sham to give an answer of how things came to be. But we know better. It's as if they're saying, you know, religion was like this fancy magic show and we've learned the magician's tricks. On the surface, it sounds so intellectual. But here's the problem. Just because you know how a light bulb works doesn't mean Thomas Edison didn't exist. Or just like a combustion engine. You may know how a combustion engine works, but it doesn't mean that Henry Ford didn't exist either. You had to have a designer. There's one question that neither science nor atheists can answer. And the question is, where does morality come from? The very idea of good and evil, where does it come from? Because according to folks like the very famous evolutionists Richard Dawkins and Lawrence Krauss, we're just beating to the beat of our DNA. We're made up of just molecules and chemicals. So if we're not just chemicals and molecules, what else is there? Well, let me suggest to you there's a creator behind the scenes. Let's look at verse 22 here. It says, But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. And so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now, and when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Interesting, interesting picture put in front of us. It's loaded. It's packed. Now, we don't have much time here, but let me bring you up to speed and give you a little background as to what's going on here. Uh, the Apostle Paul was on his way to Rome. He had been brought to Caesarea. He is under the guardianship of Rome. God using a corrupt government to further the gospel. And he had been brought to Caesarea with 470 highly trained Roman soldiers guarding his passage. And he's been placed in the palace, no, uh, no doubt, under guard. But he's allowed to have visitors to come. Caesarea is in the Mediterranean. He has bathing. He has sunlight. And in one sense, it's a slight reprieve from the kind of incarceration he had been used to. The scenery is beautiful. He has activities. Um, he has all the amenities he needs as a Roman citizen to have some quality of life. But I'm sure he's like a wild animal who's been caged up. If you compare the last two years to the next two years, he was beaten. He was shipwrecked. People were chasing him down. And now he's come to this beautiful place. Things have slowed down for him momentarily. I mean, and don't get me wrong. He's still incarcerated. He's still a prisoner. But he's been allowed a little bit more freedom. He has a little bit more flexibility. Now, Paul could have easily taken his leisure and throttled back. He said, you know what? Um, I'm enjoying this. 
I'm going to kick back. You know, let, let, let everybody else do the work. But that's not who Paul was. Why? Well, in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, we're getting a little insight here. He says, And see, now I go bound in spirit, in the spirit, to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. So here we have prophecy. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He didn't count his life dear to himself. What motivates a man to live this way? To give his life for others. What motivates a man? Let me tell you what motivates a man. When you have an encounter with Jesus Christ, that is what changes you. He had met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And from that moment on, he was, he was different. He was not the same man. He gave his life for others. You know, Voltaire, another famous atheist, when he was dying, leaned over to his physician. He says, I'll give you half my worth if you'll just give me six months more to live. He says, but you know what? It won't make a difference. I will still go to hell. More life didn't equate better living for Voltaire. And many of us, like Voltaire, don't have a proper perspective of life. What's important in your life? What motivates you? Is it power? Is it prestige? Is it vice? What is it? What drives you? And no doubt, Paul has been reflecting over the gospel. He's been pouring over his mind. And finally, finally, Felix and Drusilla, no doubt driven out of curiosity, she being Jewish, decides to bring Paul in to hear more about the way. Folks, they had no high-definition television. She didn't have Twitter she has no iPhone. She's not online. She has no Instagram or Facebook. And she's curious. And she says, you know what? Let's get Paul and let's listen to him. He's, quite, he's causing quite the commotion. Let's bring him in and let's hear what he has to say. So Paul is, is called before Felix and Drusilla. Now, no doubt this is God's grace towards them. God is concerned for Felix. He is concerned for Drusilla. And God is concerned over you. So who is Felix? Who is this guy? Well, history tells us that Felix had been raised in Rome as a slave. His mother was Antonia, who cared for the mother of Claudius, who is now Caesar. So Felix and his brother Paulus had been raised in the palace as servants and playmates to Claudius who's risen to power and who is currently the Caesar at that time. His brother uh, Paulus was evidently tremendously gifted. He has been given his freedom and is in the court of Rome, next to Caesar under his influence. Felix has been granted to be governor of the area of Judea. He's a procurator, and in Roman history, he is the first procurator granted to a freedman and that never happened before. This man had been a slave. And as, as he comes, he has been granted his freedom. And now he controls all of Judea, 
Jerusalem and parts of Syria are all under his jurisdiction. We are told by Tacitus, the Roman governor and historian, that, uh, that he had the authority of a king, but the mindset of a slave. As a matter of fact, quote, he said, there was a slave's heart all the time under Felix's royal robes. Felix was a cruel man. Many died at his hand. And he was an immoral man. And he was an extremely wealthy, wealthy man. Another Roman historian tells us at one point uh, that Claudius complained that he, he lacked money. He didn't have enough money. And one of the senators said, hey, why don't you partner up with Paulus and Felix and learn how, the, how they uh, make money and you'll be just as wealthy as they are. So he's wealthy beyond imagination. He's on his third marriage. He married one woman who happened to be the daughter of Antonia and Cleopatra. A very famous couple, as we know. And it says that now he's now with Drusilla, his wife. Interesting picture here. It's his third wife, but she's also someone else's wife at this present time. She has another husband. She had never bothered to divorce. What a picture. It kind of reminds me of, of a bad reality show. You know, he, here we have, you know, these women who, who don't blush anymore. The things that we used to say are shameful, they have no problem flaunting. I mean, we have TV shows like Wife Swap, Basketball Wives, and, and Big Brother. And you see these things, and you wouldn't show them to your kids. But that's the day we live in. Drusilla is the daughter of Agrippa I. Her father put James to death and was going to kill Peter. Her great-uncle beheaded John the Baptist, and her great-grandfather was Herod the Great who slaughtered the innocent babies in search of the Christ child. She was from an Idumean family, and because she is Jewish by blood, she understands the things that took place with John the Baptist, the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. She's heard through uh, her family, and no doubt she's part of the reason why Paul is there this day. Now, she had been married at some point uh, around the age of 14 to 15 years old to her first husband, which was Syrian. And her husband, who was Syrian, converted to Judaism in order to marry her. And somehow, that relationship had become distasteful for her. And Felix, seeing Drusilla at a Roman gathering, is smitten with her. He looked at her and he said, whoa, whoa what a woman. Gotta have her. You know, problema numero uno for men, women, beautiful women, right? You guys can say, you can agree with me, right? That's the problem with men. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Lots of money and beautiful women are a bad combination. Josephus tells us that Drusilla surpassed. She excelled all the women for beauty. beauty. And there are some that feel that she was actually the most beautiful woman in the entire Roman Empire. It's quite a statement. Take note of that because we worship that in our culture today, don't we? Beauty. I mean, you can't drive down the freeway without seeing billboards regarding plastic surgery, liposuction, or Botox, right? Everyone looks like they're stretched out. And millions are spent today on beauty. I'm not saying some people don't need it, but I'm just saying, you know, just you can't drive anywhere without seeing it. 
Well, this woman is beautiful beyond imagination. At this point, she's probably 18 to 20 years old. She is living with him. She married Felix without divorcing her her other husband. She's living in adultery. And she evidently is striking. Her sister Bernice was always jealous of her because of her beauty. She's got it all. Everything that's deified today. She's got money beyond what you and I can imagine. And these two call for Paul. And they say, you know, we want to hear of the faith in Christ. The faith in Christ. We, we want to hear what your message is, Paul. Now, they had no idea what they were asking for. This guy's been caged up. This guy's been used to preaching. He's been, he's been jumping on boats, getting shipwrecked, pummeled with stones, beaten with rods. He's been waiting to preach for quite some time. And they let him out. And he's going to give, the, he's going to give it to them both. He's going to give them an unexpected dose of reality. It says that he reasons with Felix and Drusilla who are seated in front of him about righteousness, which they didn't possess. About self-control, which they obviously didn't display. And about judgment that was coming, which was certain to overtake them. And it says as they listened, Felix trembled and sent Paul away. He said, I'll send for you and talk to you at a more convenient time. Take note of that. At a more convenient time. We do that, don't we? We're not, when we're not comfortable about something. You know what? Let me avoid this. I'll, we'll talk later at a more convenient time. You know, I, I appreciate the boldness of Paul, the apostle. He is brought before the highest political crowd in the land. He is not trying to be politically correct. He is not trying to present a good feel message. He is, he is not trying to be a crowd pleaser. He is brought before these people and he talks to them about righteousness, about self-control, about judgment. Listen, these issues, and it's important for you and I to understand, are not right or left. These issues are not political. They are, they are about up and down. These issues are a heaven and hell they're all about the eternal and somehow we have gotten very confused in this country righteousness self-control and judgment have nothing to do with politics or a specific agenda these truths are the same in a communist country these truths are the same in a fascist country and they're even true in a republic like ours these things are timeless they're about eternity they're about heaven or hell. And it's, a, it's important to see that. And without shame, Paul just lets it fly here. You know, Romans, the book of Romans, was already written at this point in time. So you can imagine when he begins to speak to them about righteousness, it isn't about a righteousness that Paul strove for when he lived under the law. You know, he said, uh, uh, "Thou," when he read, Thou shalt not covet, then he understood that which was to bring life he discovered it brought death. It, it caused him to realize it was a heart issue. And he was guilty before an almighty God. Do you realize that one day that you are going to stand before God's throne, before an almighty God, all by yourself, your mommy, your daddy, your brothers and sisters, your wife, no one's going to be around, around you. 
just you and an almighty God. What did Paul discover? He discovered the law, that the law revealed that he was a sinner. He wasn't as good as he thought he was. He thought if he kept the law, it would make him acceptable to God. But what it really did was it proved his guilt before God. God's law is right. We're the ones who are broken. Paul understands now and he, he discourses with them. And of course, we just have the outline of the sermon here. But he talked to them about righteousness. He said, look, every human being has this innate sense that there's a right and there's a wrong. That's why we scream when we see things are unfair. Go, that's fair. That's unfair. That's fair. That's unfair. This is right. This is wrong. God has put that innate sense in each and every one of us. And we scream when we see things are unfair. That's why we have courtrooms, right? Because we want justice. He put this in us. We know what's right and what's wrong. I'm reminded of a story about Abby Johnson. She worked in an abortion clinic. And she decided that one day she was going to help out with one of the procedures. And so she's there and, and she's viewing this baby in the ultrasound. And she sees the baby moving. And the baby's trying to move and avoid the instrument the doctor had inserted into the uterus. She reasoned that this baby was trying to fight for its life. The next thing she witnessed was a baby being torn apart and suctioned out. In her words, one moment the baby was there, the next it wasn't. She concluded that this was wrong. Why? Because God has put it into each and every one of us that this is right and this is wrong. Atheists and non-believers don't want to attach that to God. They believe, they want to believe that evil and good evolved within the animal kingdom. But every human has this sense of righteousness. And every human being knows that they don't measure up to it. We want to grade the human race on the curve, don't we? I know I did. We want to grade everyone on the curve so that we're all okay. You know, we're all, yeah, we're all in the same camp. Yeah, we deserve heaven. Come on, we're not that bad. But God doesn't grade on the curve. No, Paul reasoned to them about a perfect righteousness that a holy God demanded for, for any human to stand before him. He proved that it was impossible. And he talked to Felix and Drusilla about repentance and accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior, and the fact that he who knew no sin became sin for them. He became sin for Felix and Drusilla. And they could, have, they could have been the very righteousness of God in Christ. And I don't think he was mean-spirited. I don't think he was uh, forcing anything on them. I think his heart was broken because he knew God loved them. God loved Felix and Drusilla. And I think it was an incredible measure of God's grace to have Paul standing in front of these people. And you and I, we just might be too hypocritical and quick to judge someone who's on their third wife. Someone who's cruel. Someone who's completely self-centered like Felix. You and I might be very fast to judge someone who's living in adultery. Someone who's like Drusilla. Someone who all she cares about or all they care about is how beautiful they are on the outside. 
I believe that God was presenting to these two excuse me, individuals an open door for forgiveness to receive God's Son as Savior. And he was a great apostle they had a, a private audience with. And he's standing there telling the truth about righteousness that we can never attain. Because Isaiah 64 says, our righteousness is like filthy rags. That's, that's our works. That's our best. God says, your righteousness is like filthy menstrual rags. And that's not a knock against us. He says, that's, that's our best. He reasoned with them about righteousness and then self-control. When we come to Christ, we're a new creation in Christ. The things we can never do. And these two uh, who need to hear a little bit about self-control, um, he's trying to express to them, when you come to Christ, your life changes. We don't keep doing the same stuff that we used to do. He sets us free. He transforms our lives. He enlivens our spirits again by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where the new birth takes place. And look, you have to understand this. Now, for example, if we take a point of reference, right? And everything under that point, relative to punishment and God's wrath, has been settled on the cross of Christ. We're never going to experience the wrath if we come to Him by faith. He was punished in our place. He bore our sins in the tree, Peter tells us. And all of God's wrath was satisfied upon Him. God's judgment was satisfied upon Him. Above that point of reference, what we do in response determines the rewards that we'll get. Not legalism, because salvation is never a reward. It's a free gift. Paul said when he wrote to the Corinthians, some of us, you and I, believers, when we stand before the Lord, our works will endure the fire as they're tried as gold and silver and precious stones. We're going to be rewarded for our service to Christ, not salvation. Again, salvation is not a reward. It's a gift. So often we think we're working for salvation. No, it's not a reward. It's a gift. So Paul was talking to these two about righteousness that they can receive as a free gift by extending faith towards God through Jesus Christ. Then he's talking to them about the fact that they can live a different life. Maybe some of you are tonight. You're looking to live a different life, but you don't know how. He talks about self-control, that they can have temperance, that they can demonstrate things they had never been able to demonstrate before, like saying no to sin. If you're here tonight and you don't know Christ, you can't say no to sin. You just can't. You can, you can be really good and try, but you usually cave in. It's hard to say no to sin. God gives us a spirit so we can say yes to Him and say no to sin. Then He goes on to say that, and it's all important because there is a judgment. And the way it's written here in the Greek, the judgment is already in the process of coming. It's on its way. It's on its way. It's inescapable. And it's a higher judgment than any Roman court. There's a higher judge than any judge in Rome. It's inescapable. And it's relative to man's righteousness. It's relative to the way we live. There is a judgment. And there is a given an account to. That's why uh, in the country we live here, they don't want to hear about Ken Ham and creationism. 
They don't want to hear about him. Why? Because the reason they don't want to hear it is because in their heart they know it's true. Otherwise it wouldn't bother them. If you were to tell people that someday you can have your own underwater home and Spongebob and Patrick the Starfish live there, they would put you in a special place. But it wouldn't bother them. It wouldn't bother them. It bothers them when they hear about a God who's a creator and a redeemer because they know there's a judgment that's coming. Some people like to live like there's no tomorrow. But there is. There is a tomorrow. And he probably said to them, you will meet Jesus Christ either as Savior or as Judge. If you too were to turn to Christ, your sins would be forgiven and you will see Him face to face as Savior. If you refuse, you will stand at the great white throne as a sinner in your own righteousness and the books will be opened. And that's the one thing Felix and Drusilla didn't want to hear that their lives were being recorded in the book. Do you want someone to look at your book? They certainly didn't want to know that. They didn't want to hear about all the misdeeds they did in their life, all the killing, the adultery. They don't want to hear, they don't want to hear any of that. The lies, the deception. It tells us that as this conversation went forward, Felix trembled. And the Greek tells us here he became mortified, terrified, and rightfully so. Drusilla seems to have no response. Listen, he's under conviction because, he, again, become, he becomes terrified for this very reason. You know, the Bible tells us as believers, Christians, that one day, maybe, just maybe, we're going to stand before kings and those in authority. And Mark thirteen eleven tells us, but when they arrest you and deliver you up, don't worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. I'm just a tool up here. That's what I am. I'm a mouthpiece. It's the Holy Spirit who comes in the sanctuary and convicts your heart. It is not me. It's God's word. He does a much better job than I ever would. Felix was under conviction of God's spirit. And no doubt this was happening right here. The Holy Spirit gave Paul everything he needed to say. That's one side of the coin. What's the other side? John 16, 8 says, And when he, speaking about the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That is what he does. And not because he's trying to create a, a big bummer or, or burden on your life. He's trying to open your eyes. That this world is very limited. It's bound. He wants to reveal to you the hope of heaven. That there's a God in the heavens who loves you. That's his work. And these are the things that Paul covered. And it's very interesting to watch this scene. And no doubt the Holy Spirit prompting Paul what to say. And on their end receiving conviction. The sad thing to see is these two individuals, particularly Felix, because he's under the conviction of the Spirit, does not yield. He's under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and he does not yield. He says, you know what? 
We'll talk about this some other time when it's convenient. And you know what? That day never came. I want you to listen to this. There's going to be a time somewhere in your life where there'll be no more grace, there'll be no more forgiveness, no more opportunity. There is a time when the last warning comes. Felix, within two years, is dismissed. Portius Festus comes and he takes his place. He's called back to Rome for cruelty. The only reason he's not put to death is because his brother Paulus is by Caesar's side. And he still has some influence at that point in time. He is banished and ultimately he commits suicide. Because a convenient day never came. Drusilla separates from Felix when he's called back to Rome. She has one son by him whom she names Agrippa after her father and her uncle. He is the apple of her eye. 20 years later, in 79 AD, Josephus tells us they traveled to Pompeii. And there was news the mountain was rumbling. The mountain was trembling. Well, if you know history, Mount Vesuvius blew. And they were consumed with the heat and the lava. And that convenient day never came. Listen, for you and I, we worship convenience in our culture. We, uh, we have convenience stores. We have phones that do everything for us, right? We don't even leave our homes. We could just order something on Amazon, right? Uh, yeah, we get angry when something is not convenient. <laughs> I've been waiting 15 minutes for my six burgers, six uh, shakes, and six fries. It's only been 15 minutes. There's a line of people, but yet we, we get angry, don't we? Because we're used to this culture. We like convenience. We love convenience. We worship convenience. But the recognition of sin and repentance, of righteousness, of self-control, of judgment to come are not convenient things. They're central issues regarding life and eternity. Listen, Jesus is the Savior of all mankind because He is sinless. He resurrected from the dead. He fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements which we can never do. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but, I love that, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift. And I tell people often, when does something become a gift? Well, what do you mean? Well, if I have a gift here, when does it become yours? Until you receive it. As long as I hold it, it's just a gift in my hand. It's not a gift until you receive it. You got to make it yours. As sinners, we deserve God's judgment and his wrath. But that was thwarted because Jesus laid down his life in our place at the cross. He went to the cross to satisfy God's wrath that was meant for you and that was meant for me. But he doesn't force salvation on us. He lets us decide if we want the gift or to refuse it. Salvation is free. It's not a reward. How does one receive salvation? You may be sitting there saying, okay, how does that work? Can you explain that to me? How does this work? Well, I can lead you in a prayer in a few minutes. But essentially, it's agreeing with God that you're a sinner and you want forgiveness. It's accepting Jesus as, as your Savior into your heart. 
And by doing that, God will live in you. He will completely ratify your life. You say, that, that sounds appealing. You're darn right it's appealing. I need God in my life. I messed up my life enough. I want him to come in and navigate my life. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that tonight? Because that's a life-altering decision. You say, you know what? I'll come back at a more convenient time. That convenient time may not come, folks. It might not come. You know, as I was thinking about this message, and I remember sitting in the crowd, and they gave the invitation. I'm sitting there going, this is weird. Why am I at a church? I'm 21 years old. I have my whole life ahead of me. This is, this is weird. These people are going to rip me off. I just know it. I've seen it on TV. Let me tell you something. All I, can, I could not deny the fact that God was tugging at my heart, and I knew and if you're out there tonight, you're probably feeling the same thing. Listen, God's real. He wants to invade your life in every way. If you want to pray, you can just repeat this simple prayer after me. Let's, let's pray. Father, I come to you. And I agree with you that I'm a sinner. I understand Jesus died for my sins. And I want your forgiveness. I want to accept Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Help me walk with you all the days of my life. And I thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.